chapter 7, if you'll turn there. Nehemiah chapter 7, as we continue our journey through the Old Testament and through the book of Nehemiah, it's a powerful, wonderful study. Nehemiah chapter 7, a couple of announcements I'd like to make. There's a lot of things in your bulletin, and everybody should have got one, and um, so uh, mark those things down. Koinonia Fellowship on the 24th. Um, the youth are going to have a meeting with the parents on the 25th after the second service on the Eagle Trip. So parents, those of you who have kids going, note that. Ladies' breakfast on the 31st. Ladies, be sure to sign up for that. And then also our uh, one service that we're going to do on June 8th. And at 9.30 out in the backyard, we'll have a big tent set up. So uh, you'll be shaded. And... Um, as we celebrate our anniversary, and it's going to be a wonderful time. And then also remind you on Friday is chess graduation. You're all welcome to that. They want to make sure that you are invited to that. The baby bottle campaign started. I know the weather kept some people from coming out. So as you come in, if you are wondering what those baby bottles are about, that is for the Resource Center for Pregnancy and Personal Health, the ministry that we support here in Greeley. And uh, so you can fill up those baby bottles with change, put a check in there, whatever you want to do. Just make sure that you bring it back and bring it up to the office, and we'll make sure that they get it. Also, registration for Vacation Bible School. So make sure that you're getting all the information to not only your own kids and get them pre-registered, but friends, neighbors, uh, whoever it might be. And uh, we're looking forward to Vacation Bible School. Um, that is the June 9th through the 13th. 9.30 to noon, and then those of you who are helping with snacks, um, there is uh, the snack supply sign-up sheet uh, at the registration table, so take a look at that flyer as well. So lots going on here. Also, I promised you on Sunday that we have the brochures out for the uh, 2015 Calvary Chapel Greeley Israel Tour, and uh, so those are available for you, and you can take that. Um, it has um, the information that you need to know right now, and um, it has um, deposit information and, um, that um, you need to put down. Um, it has itinerary. You can look at that, and you can look at the places we're going to stay online. So take a look at that. If you are planning on registering, when you register, can you let me know? And uh, I'd like to just add some more information for you as we get, it's a year away, you know how fast a year goes. Uh, we want to give people plenty of time, it's May 25th through June 5th of 2015, but if you have the opportunity to go, um, it'd be a great um, way for the Bible to really come alive for you. And um, so take a look at those, they're available out there at the information desk, and we'll be reminding everybody for a while on this trip. So we wanted to make sure that you knew about it. So take a look at it, and I know that you'll be tremendously blessed. As I mentioned, there's a lot of things there in the bulletin Sunday. We're going to finish the book of Galatians, chapter 6. The book of Galatians has been such an incredible study. Uh, many of you have given me feedback that you really have been freed up and just living in the love and in the grace of Jesus Christ and what it means to walk in the freedom of Christ. We're going to continue that theme and, and walking in the liberty of Jesus Christ in chapter 6. And so come and join us as we finish the book of Galatians. And then on Memorial Weekend, we are going to start John's Gospel. And John's Gospel, that is one book of the Bible that is read more than any other books of the Bible. And in John's Gospel, 99 times you see the word and read the word believe. And so it is written to uh, show us that Jesus is the Son of God, that we might believe in him. And it's an incredible book. Oftentimes when somebody comes to Christ and we get them started in devotions, we will tell them, Go read John's Gospel. And also another book that we do that with is the book of Romans. But John's Gospel is a great book for us to see Jesus. You know, the, the greatest request that uh, was ever made that I think in the Bible, we read in John chapter 12 when the Greeks came to see Jesus and they said to the disciples, we wish to see Jesus. And that's who we're going to see as we go through John's gospel very clearly. We're going to see who he is and uh, we are going to look at the, the uh, eight I am statements that Jesus makes, those statements of deity and um, divinity showing that he's the son of God. So an incredible study that we'll embark in. Um, first, we're going to finish Galatians chapter 6, 
You want to be for that, uh, there for that. And then John's gospel, that'll take us at least through the, the end of the year. So we're looking forward to that. Tonight, Nehemiah chapter 7, again, a wonderful. All the books of the Bible are wonderful. Um, but uh, Nehemiah is such a godly man. And so, Father, we ask that you would just bless this time in the study of your word. We're so thankful that we can come and be enriched uh, with the study of the Word of God and during the week. And Lord, as we look at the qualities and the characteristics um, of Nehemiah being a leader, Lord, I just pray that uh, we would learn from that, but also, Lord, that we would learn um, from the pages of this chapter here how it is that we can apply these things in our lives that we're reading about. And Lord, how we can be faithful, how we can fear you, and how we can be ones that we are watchful in our own lives. So bless this time in the study of your word, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And so as we end at chapter 6 last time, uh, we know in verse 15 that it tells us that they completed the wall in 52 days. We know that Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem in 445 B.C. He was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. He had grieved hearing from his brother that the city still didn't have the wall that was built around it. It still was very much destroyed. The homes weren't built, and uh, it was the rubble that had come back in the first uh, wave of return by the decree of Cyrus, uh, the first king of the Medes and the Persians. And he would be one that um, Cyrus said, you can go back, you can rebuild the temple, and that's what they did. But the city still lay in much rubble, and it was very difficult, and the people were discouraged. They were unprotected. So Artaxerxes, as Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king, told him you can go back and uh, rebuild the wall, gave the command, gave the decree that he could do that. So that's what Nehemiah did. And of course, in chapter 2, we saw that they would rise up and they said, let us set our hands to do this good work. And that's one of the things that I've said and, and pointed out very uh, much, um, I know, over and over again as we've gone through this study is that when you are living for the Lord and as you are serving the Lord, as you're devoted to the Lord, it's really a wonderful thing. And, and as you are desiring to live a life to please him and to serve him, it is a good work. And never forget that. So Nehemiah, he and the men of Judah began to do this work. It seemed like an, almost an impossible task because it was so bad that Nehemiah, even trying to ride around and scope the city out, uh, the, the donkey that we was on had a hard time getting through all the rubble and the stones that was left when Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. came in and destroyed Jerusalem. So they set their, their hands to this good work, but we have seen very clearly in this book that whenever God is doing that good work in us, that when we are growing in the Lord and living for him, a life pleasing in his sight, when we are serving the Lord, we're devoted to him, opposition comes against us. And we need to understand that as Christians because sometimes as Christians, we get thrown for a loop. Now in chapter 5, we saw that there was challenges and difficulties that came to them from inwardly. That is, there was a dispute among the, the um, children of Israel, that is the, the people of Judah, because of usury. And some of the men were uh, giving loans at a very high interest rate. And people were losing their lands. And even some of their sons and daughters were going into slavery. And so Nehemiah, he rebukes them. He says, listen, we just came out of that. We just came out of slavery. We just came out of the Babylonian captivity. Why would we want to do this to our brethren? So they give the land back. They, everything gets set right. But then in chapter 6, as we saw last time, that there is opposition that comes outwardly. And oftentimes and many times and throughout our lives, we will experience that opposition from the world and we will experience it from the enemy. And we saw the tactics that Tobiah, who was an enemy of the Jews, and Sanballat, what they did is they were riding Nehemiah. They wrote him four times. Hey, you come to the plains of Ono. You need to meet with us. Get off the wall. And we need to discuss this, this building of the wall. And Nehemiah says, oh no, I'm not going to go. And I'm not going to get off this wall. I'm not going to go into your territory and discuss this there's no purpose for it 
Plus, Nehemiah knew that they just wanted to harm him. And one of the things about Nehemiah that we see going through this that I'm trying to point out is that Nehemiah was such a godly, effective leader because of the characteristics and the qualities, godly qualities, that he displayed in his life. And one of the things that made him an effective leader was that he was wise and discerning. When we get done with the book of Nehemiah, what I'm really praying about is I would like to do a series for maybe one week, two weeks, four weeks on God is looking for leaders and really go through these characteristics, these qualities that not only Nehemiah displays, but for example, Joshua and, and men of God in the scripture displayed that will help us. I believe there are qualities and characteristics that God wants to work into all of our lives as Christians. And I think that is so needed today. So we'll take our time and we'll go through that and we'll look at that, you know, as we get closer to the end of the book of Nehemiah. But Nehemiah, we will know, and as we read, he was one that was wise and discerning. He says, listen, they're just wanting to harm me. And here's the thing. You and I, we need to be careful that we don't go into the enemy's territory. We don't go into the world. Remember the children of Israel? They wanted to go back to the world. Uh, that's what the enemy wants you to do. He, he wants you to go back to the ways of the world, the things of the world, because he knows that he can pounce on you and he can do harm to you because he is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And that's what Peter writes in his epistle. And also remember that Peter says that you and I are living stones that we are a part of, of these stones, just as Nehemiah was on the wall and they're putting stones together. You and I are in a sense that we are doing a work and that stones are being put together. Uh, there's a work of God that needs to be done. And the enemy doesn't like it. He doesn't like it that, that you are desiring to be used of the Lord. He doesn't like it that your family's desiring to be used of the Lord. He really hates it that this church is continuing to, to do the, the things of the Lord and serve the Lord and serve this community and he is going to look for ways to get us off the wall and one of those ways is through distractions and we also saw that then the fifth time they wrote a letter and said hey Nehemiah um, that uh, you're just you know wanting to be the king over these people and you're rebelling against Artaxerxes and we're going to write a letter to him and we're going to tell him and Nehemiah said listen you guys make this up in your mind and they were only trying to put fear into them so not only will the enemy try to distract you but he will accuse you he will intimidate you he will bully you and then he'll try to put fear into us and that happens in our lives and that's very important that as we just look to the Lord that we just depend on the Lord and read his promises and stand on his promises the promises that he tells us that we as Christians don't have to be afraid and then he said that you know what um, as one of the uh, guys that was you know aligning themselves with uh, Tobiah and Sanballat said Nehemiah you need to go and hide in the temple because they seek to kill you and Nehemiah said am I such a man as to do that I'm not going to do that I am not going to hide in the temple because he knew that was compromised only the priests were allowed to go into the temple so I'm not going to do that I'm going to stay on the wall and we see that it was completed in 52 days you see the enemy was disheartened as you read it um, the enemy was defeated uh, disheartened in their own eyes for they perceived that this work was done by our God you know, James tells us that as we submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. And as we just look to the Lord and submit to him, then the enemy is going to be disheartened. And he has no direct authority over us. Oh, he'll throw the fiery darts. He's powerful. We're not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. It's a spiritual warfare that's out there. But please understand that the enemy in the world will come against us, and he'll come against you. Don't let you know, uh, yourself be thrown for a loop or just so discouraged that you're going to quit because that happens. And especially as you're growing in the Lord, especially as you're doing a good work for the Lord, and he's going to continue to come at you and me and at this church continually. So we learn from Nehemiah how it is that, that we can keep the enemy from you know, getting us off the wall and distracting us, uh, intimidating us. You know, he accuses us, putting fear into us, bringing us into that place of compromise and sin. You keep your eyes on the Lord.
and you just stand on his promises and knowing this, knowing this, and this is a very important verse for me in my life, being confident of this very thing as Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who has begun a good work will bring it to completion. And he brought this work to completion in building the wall. And he's going to bring your work to completion. And that makes me just rest in him. Lord, thank you that you promise I can have confidence. When Paul writes, being confident of this very thing, what he's saying to you and to me, it's going to happen. There's no doubt about it. That he who has begun a good work will bring it to completion. And so I can trust in him. And I can just look to him, knowing that he will do that work. So Nehemiah, even though the wall has been completed, his ministry isn't done yet. And let's go into chapter 7. And then it was when the walls in verse 1 was built. And I had hung the doors when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani, and Hanani, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. So the wall is built, as we know, from chapter 6. It tells us again in verse 1 here, the, the, the doors are hung, and everything was done orderly. Everything was done practically, but here again we see one of the qualities that made Nehemiah a very good leader. And we're going to see this emphasized now really throughout the rest of the book of, the, of Nehemiah. That he didn't neglect the spiritual side of things. You see the wall was done, the, the doors are finished. But then Nehemiah is going to make sure that the spiritual things which are really a priority are being taken care of as well. And both need to be done in our lives. The practical things, the spiritual things. We don't get so involved in work that we forget about our spiritual life, our devotion to the Lord, uh, how we need to continue growing in the Lord. And here is Nehemiah. He, what he does is he appoints Hanani, his brother. Remember, it was Hanani that came to Nehemiah in chapter 1. And Nehemiah said, who had never been to Jerusalem, when he's a cupbearer to the king, hey, what's up, bro? You know, what's going on in Jerusalem? Hey, it's in rubble, and it's bad. And Nehemiah, his heart was so burdened that we see he prayed and fasted for four months. So he appoints his brother in Hananiah, and Nehemiah is going to go back to the king. Remember that the king in chapter 2, when he gave Nehemiah permission to go back, he asked Nehemiah, how long are you going to be gone? So they set a time. And Nehemiah is going to go back to the king, so he's delegating responsibility. And so he takes care of things practically. He wants to make sure that things are taken care of spiritually. It reminds me so much of what David did. Remember in 1 Chronicles? In 1 Chronicles, you go through those chapters, and even though David did not build the temple, he did what he could to help get things ready, practically and spiritually. He made sure that uh, the plans were made up as uh, it was given to him by uh, the Spirit of God, as it tells us in First Chronicles. He drew the plans for the temple. He got materials ready for it. Uh, he got metals, gold, silver, the spoils that he was getting from defeating the enemy. He had brought them. He stored them away. He had uh, made relationships and covenants and, and or, you know, with um, Tyre up north and, and, and that had the cedar logs. David did all the things practically in getting things ready so when he died and his son Solomon came on the scene, everything was in place, but not only practically, materially, but also spiritually, because you recall that David got all the priests, you know, organized. They were given responsibilities. They were going to be, you know, given, um, you know, different uh, seasons that they were to serve there at the temple, uh, you know, a couple weeks out of the year, different rotations. He had the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians that were all ready for worship there. He had all the spiritual side ready to go as well. And that was a big help for Solomon. In our lives, listen, all of us, we got living that we need to make, bills that we need to pay, things that need to be taken care of. You know, we have the practical side of things that is important for us that we pay attention to, to be good stewards of what God has given to us. But also there's the spiritual priorities as well. And we never want to let those spiritual priorities go by the wayside. And Nehemiah knew the importance. Listen, 
He didn't just say, okay, the wall's been built. Nice to be here. 52 days, I think I did pretty good. I'm heading back. You know, I got a great job back in Persia. I'll see you guys later. No, he appoints a couple guys that make sure that things are going to be taken care of and that things are in place, the Levites, the priests, and he's going to continue to do that. Now, as he appoints his brother in Hananiah, he appoints these guys because of two qualities. One was they were faithful. Notice that these guys here were faithful. They were faithful. And they had shown themselves to be faithful men there in verse 2. It was Paul that wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, the things that you have heard from me uh, uh, among many witnesses. He says to Timothy, listen, Timothy, commit these to faithful men who will then be able to teach others. And the Lord is calling us to be faithful men and women of God. We hear a whole lot, don't we? Uh, I hear a whole lot about, you know, being men and women of faith. And we need to be men and women of faith. But you know what a great need in the church today is? Faithful men and women that are faithful to the Lord, that are faithful to their families, that are faithful to the call of God in their life. Just being faithful day after day after day. Timothy, you commit as you disciple and as you're teaching. You've heard from me among many witnesses. Commit him to faithful men who will then be able to teach others. And that's such an important quality that the Lord desires for us to have, to be faithful to him, to be loyal to him. So here these men were faithful, but secondly, that they feared God more than many. You remember as we were going through the book of Galatians that Paul in chapter 1, he would write in verse 10, Do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. We know that Proverbs chapter 29 verse 25 tells us that the fair man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. So we need to, if we're going to be effective for the kingdom of God and be a true leader in our homes, at the workplace, in the church, we need to fear God over fearing man. Unfortunately today, there are more and more that will fear man more than they fear God. Because... It isn't easy being a minister of the gospel today. And as you and I, and we all minister the gospel, we live the gospel, as we stand on the word of God, we know that the world's going to come against us. We know that, that the world's going to hate us. We need to just understand that as Christians. The world isn't going to look at us as being cool. The world isn't going to look at us as being, you know, happy for us. Jesus said that the world will hate you because it first hated me. And the world is in more rebellion against God, and we know that the world will come at us full force as you stand on the truth of God's word, as you stand on the things of God. And we need to understand that. But know this, that we are to fear God more than to fear men. And what has happened is there are those who desire to be used in ministry, that they desire to minister to others in whatever way that God has called them to, and because they fear man over God, that they'll compromise. They'll compromise the message, they'll be deceptive, you know, and, and it's a slippery slope to be on, and not a good thing to be doing that when you are in a place where you fear man over fearing God. We need to fear God, or we can't be a true bondservant of Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes people will come to me and they say, oh, you know, I kind of do my own thing, you know. I'm kind of radical or I'm a rebel and all this stuff. And, and, and I say, no, you're not. You know, come on. You're not a rebel. The world likes that. You want to be a true rebel? You want to be really radical? You live for Jesus Christ. You live for him. And you stand on the promises of God. And you be that man and woman of faith, and you be a faithful man and woman. That says that this is what God's word has to say. And I believe it. And with God's help, I'm going to live it. And I fear God over fearing man then you will be a bondservant of Jesus Christ.
So here he appoints these guys in verse 3, And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station, another in front of his own house. So we've seen Nehemiah has done this, isn't he? Again, the, the, the spiritual side of things, the practical sides of things. He didn't just build a wall. He didn't just say, I'm going to leave. He says, this is what you guys need to do. What you need to do, even though the walls was, was built and, and completed, the doors were hung, they needed to continue to watch. They needed to continue to be sober. They knew that even though they had protection from the wall, they still had to set and appoint a watchman. Now, they would appoint that watchman in front of their house. And we saw when they were building the wall, when all these threats were coming from Tobiah and the threats were coming from Sanballat and they, you know, were very discouraged and they said the rubble's too much, that Nehemiah said, listen, the Lord God is great and awesome and you need to fight for your brethren and fight for your wives. Fight for your children. Continue to fight the good fight of the Spirit and he put a sword in one hand and a, and a trial in the other. And you and I, we are to fight the good fight. And one of the ways to do that is we need to be sober and, and watching. And we have talked about that quite a bit because it's amazing as we go through the New Testament how many times we are told that we are to watch, that we're to be sober, that we're to be vigilant. Don't go to sleep spiritually. And that's a very important command for you and for me because we can have a tendency in this life as we journey through life that we begin to grow drowsy spiritually. We begin to fall asleep and we need to watch. Now, a watchman, as you know, from the Old Testament was one who would stand on top of that wall. He would look out and if there was danger coming, the enemy was approaching or any kind of impending danger, he would give that message of danger was coming. And you guys, we can't fall asleep. We gotta continue to protect the city. We gotta wait till the sun is high and you know, uh, before the doors are opened up and we can't get sloppy. We can't get lazy. And Nehemiah made sure that they understood that. But why was Nehemiah doing that? Not because he was just afraid that they would go to sleep spiritually. I believe that Nehemiah was making sure that they had a watch because he didn't want them to be overconfident. They went many years without a wall. And somehow they survived. And now that they got the wall around them, it's like, hey, we got it made. We can just kick back. We can put it in cruise control. You know, we got it made. Everything's going to be fine. And I believe that Nehemiah did not want them to be overconfident. And as I was considering this this morning and this afternoon, I couldn't help but think about what Jesus had to say to a church in Revelation chapter 3. And you can listen or you can turn there, the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 3. And, and I think this is an important you know, point that we need to consider here tonight as Nehemiah sits at that place of, you know, a watchman on the wall to make sure that they're not overconfident. You've got to keep watching for the enemy. You can't go to sleep. You, you can't just, you know, think that because we have a wall that nothing's going to happen. But in chapter 3 of the book of Revelation, the church of Sardis in verses 1 through 6, there's a similar message that was given to them. And you see, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, as a lot of you know, that Jesus, in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation... John sees the glorified Jesus, and he's standing in the midst of seven lampstands. And Jesus, as he stands in the midst of seven lampstands, we know that those are seven churches, as John was told, there that existed in the first century in Proconsular Asia, which is today Turkey. And Jesus, standing in the midst of those seven churches, that he turns to each one of those churches, and he writes a letter to them. And as you look at a map, as it goes from Ephesus to Thyatira to Pergamos, it kind of goes in a circle. And Jesus, writing a letter to each one of those churches, he would write and he would talk about their works. He would commend them on the things that they were doing well, and he would rebuke them on the things that they were not doing well. 
And it's a powerful, powerful study when you get into the book of Revelation. It's an important study. Sometimes it kind of gets lost because people want to get to chapters 6 through 19 and get out to all the judgment stuff, you know. Hey, let's look at the, the bull judgments and, uh, you know, Trump judgments and the seal judgments and all the other things that are going on. But chapters 2 and 3 are so very rich. I think they're probably the two richest chapters there because it's speaking to the church. And by the way, as you minister to those who are kind of having the attitude of, I don't believe in organized religion. I don't go to church. I don't believe in the church. Or they're down on the church. Or, you know, we're not going to go to church. The church is very important to Jesus. It is what he set up as he is the foundation of the church he is the cornerstone of the church he loves the church is paul the apostles that went about and the others that established churches and he stands in the midst of the church and he loves this church in hebrew says that we're not to forsake ourselves the assembly of ourselves together as is the matter of some especially as you see the day what day the day of the lord that it's important that we be with other believers and it's awfully difficult as we saw for example in the book of galatians where paul the apostle he's talking about love the fruit of the spirit is love but he would say serve one another with love and so the church is very important to jesus and he turns to each one of these churches and he writes a letter to them. And what's so fascinating about that study, why it's so important, is because it's seven churches that he writes to. And it's kind of like we can look at our own lives individually and we kind of fit into one of those seven categories. For example, the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus was a working church. He commended them. They stood on truth. They had a lot of things that were going on, but he said, this I have against you, you've left your first love. And I remember when that was first taught to me years and years ago when, you know, it was a dry season for me. And I just thought if I just work more or try harder and there was all this workspaces, but there wasn't a real love for the Lord. And when I read that, I felt like the Lord was writing that letter to me. That, Jeff, you've left. You haven't lost it, but you've left it. And you need to remember from which you have fallen. You need to repent and do those first works. Return, the three R's. Remember, repent, return. And then I add a fourth, remain there, okay? Stay there. So what's fascinating is, is that we can go through, am I an Ephesus Christian? Am I a, hopefully not a Laodicea, the last church that was a lukewarm church? We can make application for us personally and as a church corporately as well are we like the church at ephesus where we have all this activity that's going on are we like the church of laodicea the last church that's lukewarm they thought that they had no need and jesus says because you think you have no need that you're rich that you're actually poor miserable naked blind and you're lukewarm so they are powerful studies some of the churches, like the church of Laodicea in chapter 3 and the church of Sardis here, he didn't have really anything good to say about them. And the reason that I'm bringing the church of Sardis up is because I think it goes with what Nehemiah was doing, to set a watch. Don't be overconfident. We read that to the angel of the church of, in Sardis write in, in verse 1 of Revelation 3, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. We know that Sardis was at one time, historically, was a very beautiful city. And at this time, at the end of the first century, that John is writing this, that Sardis was a city on decline. It had already seen its best days. And there was idolatry that was there. And matter of fact, uh, excavators have found that next to where a temple dedicated to a pagan god was a Christian church. And so it was on a decline, but 
Jesus is, after he gives his eternal description, the seven attributes of the Holy Spirit, uh, as he says that these things, he says, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, and, and he says, I know your works. He would say that to each one of the churches, and listen, he knows our works. He knows your works. And maybe nobody else notices your work. That what you're trying to do to, in pleasing the Lord with your life and serving the Lord, maybe nobody sees it. Maybe no one acknowledges it, or very few people do. But know this, Jesus says to you, I know your works. Now that's good news for us who perhaps get discouraged or down and we think, Lord, am I doing any good? Do you even see what's going on? Yes, he does. But it's also very sobering to know that he sees our works that nothing is hidden from him. And we can hide our works from other people. We can hide it from family members and other Christians, but you can never hide it from the Lord. And he says, I know your works. I know your works. And what a Christian is and what a Christian does is never hidden from Jesus. And he says to them that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. You have a reputation of being religious, uh, you are a church that probably has a lot of activities, lots of meetings, you have a reputation for being alive. People would point at that church and they would say, wow, look what's going on. Look at the history of that church. Look at, you know, the people, the names of the people that go there, the reputation that they have. But the problem was they had no real relationship. He says you have a reputation that you are alive, but spiritually you're dead. Jesus would say to the Pharisees, you appear to be righteous before men, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. And a person may have a reputation of being a Christian. Oh, they're a good Christian. But always remember that Jesus, he knows our works and he knows our hearts. And he knows if we're spiritually dead. And so here he's warning them. Even though this church had a reputation to being alive, you're dead spiritually. And Jesus sees them for what they were. And here, as Jesus begins to write to them and tell them this, he goes on and he says in verse 2, Be watchful, be watchful, that's what we're talking about. Strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard hold fast and repent therefore if you will not watch it will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour i will come upon you you know what happened to sardis historically the greek historian herodotus he tells of a story that cyrus remember cyrus gave the decree Zerubbabel, go back and rebuild the temple cyrus who was very friendly to the jews and ended the captivity. The 70 years are over. Go back now to Jerusalem. So Zerubbabel comes back. Well, Cyrus, he's in that area of Proconsular Asia. And he comes to Sardis. And Sardis was a city that was built on these steep cliffs. And then they had walls. And it seemed like that they were protected. That there was no way anybody could get to them. There was no way that any army could fight against them. And so they were overconfident. They thought, we don't need to set a watch. We don't need to have watchmen on the wall. We'll just kick back and take it easy. Well, Cyrus, he came to Sardis. He saw that the city was in a position that uh, was, you know, really suited for defense. So there seemed to be no way to scale the steep cliffs, walls that surrounded the city. So this is what Cyrus did. He offered a rich reward to anybody, any of the soldiers in the army, who could figure out a way to get up to the city. And one day, one of the soldiers, he's kind of up a little bit on the, the cliffs. He, he's looking, he's trying to get a closer look. He notices that one of the guys from Sardis pops up on the wall, and he drops something. And he drops it down the cliffs, and then the guy jumps down, and he watched him go down this, this hidden trail to recover what it is that he lost. And so that soldier marked where that location, the trail was. He ended up leading a detachment of troops up that night. They would go to the, you know, when they reached this, scaled the cliffs. They came to the actual city walls. They found them unguarded. 
because the soldiers of Sardis were so confident in their natural defenses of their city, they felt no need to keep, you know, a diligent watch. So they ended up being taken over. This is about 550 B.C. But you know what the sad thing is? It happened again almost 300 years later in 214 B.C., about five, 300 years later. Antiochus Epiphany III, Antiochus the Great is what he was called. Same thing happened. That they didn't set a watch. So Jesus comes along and, and they would kind of understand this. He said, you need to watch and strengthen the things that remain. Be watchful. Be watchful is what you are to do. And because they were overconfident, they weren't watchful and they were overtaken. And listen, we have talked about the importance of watching, not to go to sleep, not to get lethargic, not to doze off spiritually. But the other side of the spectrum is this. We cannot be overconfident. You cannot be overconfident as an individual, your family, or this church family because that's a real danger. Oh, nothing's going to happen to us. And pretty soon what happens is the defenses are down. And the enemy who studies us, you remember in Job chapter 1, we'll be in the book of Job later on this summer. And he's there and before the throne of God. And the Lord said, Job, or um, the Lord said to Satan, have you studied my servant, Job? And what was the answer of Satan? Yes, I have. And that word study is like a military general who's studying the enemy to see how he can conquer him, how he can defeat him. That's what the enemy does. He's watching. He's looking to see if we're going to drop something down and, and somehow he's going to learn to get a foothold into our lives. And we're overconfident. We think nothing's going to happen. Hey, if I compromise a little bit, if, if I watch this thing, not, no one's going to know. Nothing's going to happen. We're headed for a fall and defeat, and the enemy getting a foothold into our lives. As a church, listen. This is something that I believe that we got to be careful. As we celebrate our 18th anniversary here in just a couple weeks, that we become overconfident. Oh, things are good, you know, and everything's okay. I don't need to pray for the pastor. I don't need to pray for the people. I don't need to be serving. Listen, we cannot be overconfident. We need to totally be surrendered and depend on the Lord and have the fear of the Lord and we need to walk in humility before the Lord. We need to continue to watch. Don't be overconfident. Because that's a real dangerous place to be. So he says you need to watch. Continue to watch. And then he would say strengthen the things which are alive. It was bad in this church of Sardis. But it wasn't hopeless. There was some evidence of life in the church. And how was it that they were to strengthen the things that remain? And that means protecting. Nehemiah is saying, listen, we need to protect what it is that we have. We need to protect ourselves. The walls, you know, are protecting us and the doors need to be closed at certain times. We need to do that. How do we strengthen the things that remain? He says, number one in verse three, remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Remember what it was like when you first came to the Lord, how you heard and received and you were in love with the Lord and you were alive for the very first time and all of a sudden there's a deadness that's beginning to take place. If you're one that's saying, oh, at one time I was closer to the Lord or I was more, you know, uh, joy of the Lord in my heart, the Lord desires to, to bring you back to that place, but turn to Him. And know that he doesn't quench a smoking flax, as Isaiah says, or break a bruised reed. He desires to bring you to that place of closeness once again. And he says, hold fast, hold fast to those things. So not only watching, but holding fast, don't let go. Hold fast to those things that are good. Were you doing devotions? Continue to do devotions. Hold on to that. Hang on to the Lord. Hang on to his promises. You know, keep doing those things that please the Lord. We've got to hang on, folks, because the journey's long and the world comes against us. So remember and, and hold fast. And I pray that's a word of encouragement as he here is speaking to this church. I wonder if the Lord was to write me a letter, what would he say? If he was to write Calvary Chapel a letter, what would he say to us? Pretty sobering thought, isn't it? 
But I know that the Lord writes these things because he loves Sardis and they weren't watchful and they were overconfident. Nehemiah is saying, you guys need to set a watch. You can't be overconfident. Well, that's three verses. Do you realize that there's 73 verses in this chapter? And we're going to get through all of it. So, <laughs> verse 4. Now the city was large and spacious. You think I'm kidding. But the people were in it were few and the houses were not rebuilt. And then my God put it on my heart to gather the nobles and the rulers and the people that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return and found written in it. And these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, who had returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to a city, those who came with Zerubbabel and Joshua. So, verses 7 through 73, the citizens of Jerusalem who returned from the Babylonian captivity. The list is the same as in Ezra chapter 2. So, we've kind of looked at this. I'm not going to read all the names, okay? So, this is good reading for you when you go home and you go to bed, you can go through, you can read all these names, uh, particularly if there's anybody here or anybody watching, if, if you're expecting a baby and you need to pick a name, this would be a good chapter for you <laughs> to go through and read and see if there's a name that you might like. But no, seriously, it is these names, and listen, sometimes when these names are listed, we think, is it just to take up space? There's an important truth in this. Nehemiah was still concerned for the future of God's people and God's city. He wanted Jerusalem to prosper, so he takes a census. And he looked at the registry of those who came back to the first return under Zerubbabel. And those people who came back, it wasn't easy. It was very difficult. The work wasn't easy, and rebuilding the temple was very hard. But I believe that there's an important truth in this, and that is God doesn't forget and he will always remember what it is that we do for him and for the kingdom. And we will be rewarded for eternity. What we do for Christ, that is what will last. Notice as you go through it when you read it tonight, that at the end of the chapter, it also tells us that their gifts that they brought were noted. And you, that's noted as well. And we've seen that, haven't we, as we've gone through Ezra and Nehemiah, that the supplies, the gifts that came were noted, that what the people gave was noted. Nehemiah was a good example of one who gave. Listen, as you give, as you give of your service to others, as you give and invest in the kingdom of God, God remembers that. But I want to close with this, okay? But don't pack it up quite yet. In verse 5, I think, as we look at this list of names and, you know, as we consider it, all these names that are here, it says, Then my God put it on my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people that they might be registered by genealogy. God put it on my heart. Why? Because they were on God's heart. Listen, whenever there's somebody that ends up being on your heart, you know how that works whether it's a family member or coworker or neighbor or friend, you know how you have that person on your heart and you just ache for them? You know why? Because they're on God's heart. And God is speaking to you to be a light to them. Don't ignore that. And to continue to pray for them and be a witness to them and for them. That you continue to minister the truth of God's word to them compassion and love. Nehemiah says, these guys, you know, were on my heart. God put them on my heart. And there's a reason why God puts people on your heart. is because he loves them. And he wants them to come to you because they are in captivity. They are in captivity. And he wants them to come home to Jesus. And he wants to use you and me. So may we be sensitive to the leading of the Lord as he puts those individuals on our hearts. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this chapter. We thank you for, Lord, just your love for us. and Lord, just what we can gain from just reading some verses 
out of the book of Nehemiah, the Old Testament. And Father, my prayer for us is that we would just take heed to all these things that we learned and apply them. And I know that there are some points that perhaps touch people deeper than others. But Father, may we be ones that we desire to be open to you and being faithful men and women of God, fearing God over fearing man, and being watchful. Lord, I do pray if anyone's here listening on live stream that, that you've never come home to Jesus. That is, you've never received the gospel. Every service we give the gospel. We give the gospel because people need to hear it. And the gospel is simply that we have all sinned and Jesus, the Son of God, came and died for us so he can take us home to heaven. Have forgiveness of sin because we all sin. We can't save ourselves. And that's why Jesus came, to die for us. None of us are good enough for heaven. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And then Jesus says to us to repent, that is, turn directions and turn to him. He is our salvation. The one who hung on a cross for you and died for you so that you can have forgiveness of sin and the promise of heaven to come home. Come home to him if you haven't done that. The world's not a place for you to be because the world's going to come to a disastrous end and the world is not your hope. Come home to him. Believe in him. He loves you. He wants to save you. Forgive you. Give you a new life, a new heart. So you're not in captivity to the deception and sickness of the world. You can experience his joy and peace and salvation. But first come to him. Trust in him for salvation, forgiveness of sin. And you pray right where you are, Jesus, I believe that you died for me and that you are the way, the truth, and the life. I confess that I am a sinner and I now come to you in faith, believing in my heart that Jesus is the Son of God who died for my sins and I believe that you're alive because you rose from the grave. I confess it with my mouth and I believe it in my heart. I now surrender my life to you. Be my personal Lord and Savior. And thank you for hearing my prayer. And if anybody by chance is here that you made that decision afterwards, will you come up and talk to me and let me know? But Father, for all of us, may we be, as we've seen Nehemiah, wise and discerning, faithful men and women of God, that we would fear you and that we would watch, not be overconfident. And as a church, we wouldn't be overconfident. How we need you more than ever because the enemy is going to keep coming at us and trying to find ways to, to scale the walls, to get into a foothold into this church, into our families, and into our lives personally. So may we be watching and holding fast to those things that are good. Continue in your devotion to him. Protect your homes. Protect your minds from the filth of the world. And keep your minds on the things above and your heart on him. And just as Philippians 4.9, part of that song we sang tonight is meditate on these things that are true and noble and praiseworthy and just and true. Meditate on these things. Not to be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. And Lord, that we would walk in the Spirit as we learned on Sunday so that we don't fulfill the desires of the flesh and yield to you to experience that abundant life you have for us. Lord, I thank you for tonight. I pray you bless everyone here as we go our way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, Amen, Amen. Would you please stand?